This is the word of God. But we do not want to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel. And with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Good morning, church family. How are we doing? Good? I hope you had a good Thanksgiving weekend, and I hope you have some good leftovers as well. I tell you what, um, we're starting this sermon series today, A Tale of Two Advents, and we've been kind of working for a few weeks to get all of the, the graphics together and everything, and, and, and earlier this week on, on, I think it was Monday, Julia right here, she emailed me all these graphics. Julia put all these graphics together, by the way. Can you say thank you to her for doing that? But, but she emailed me these graphics, and I have a very strict no pre-Thanksgiving Christmas trees, no pre-Thanksgiving Christmas music. I'm a legalist when it comes to those sorts of things. And she emailed me these graphics and all these trees, and I was like, oh, no, I'm going to start playing Christmas music early. And I did. So uh, I'm very much in the festive spirit, very much in the kind of Christmas spirit, and really looking forward to spending these next four Sundays and Christmas Eve talking about the traditional themes that, that the church has really through years of history been looking at hope, peace, joy, love, and then the advent, the arrival of, of Christ himself. But doing it kind of differently, as Pastor Doug mentioned a minute ago, looking really through the lens of Christ's two advents, his, his two comings, his, his first coming, uh, born of the Virgin Mary, but also his coming that is, is yet to happen, his victorious and triumphant return. And so we'll be talking about that a lot more um, as we go into the sermon today and the next few weeks. So what I'd like to do is I'd like to pray. You guys can pray for me. I'll pray for our time together here. And then we'll unpack uh, this passage from 1 Thessalonians 4, dealing with the subject of hope. Let's pray together. Father God, as we gather together this morning, um, I, I am aware, many of us are aware of much hopelessness in the world. God, this, this time of Advent, this Christmas season, uh, one that is put forward in our culture is this time of great joy, this time of family, this time of celebration. But God, the reality is for many, it is a time of deep sadness, deep depression even. God, as, as we survey the, the news, as we look in social media or watch or listen to the news, there's so much brokenness in the world. And God, we confess that it can be easy to lose hope. My prayer today, God, is that you would help all of us to put our hope and ultimately put our hope in Christ Jesus and the hope of the gospel. That we would not have our hope in earthly things. We would not have our hope in temporal things. We would have our hope in the resurrected and coming again Savior. Guard my lips, help me to only teach your truth and give all of us soft and teachable hearts that we might receive from you. And we pray all of this in Jesus' good name. And everyone said, amen. 
One of my favorite hymns is Joy to the World. And we'll be, I'm sure, singing that over the next few weeks as we move towards Christmas. A great, a great hymn. Joy to the World was written by a man named Isaac Watts. He's called the father of hymns. He was an English man. And he uh, really, he wrote this hymn, I believe it was in 1719. So think about that. The, the hymn Joy to the World is older than the United States of America. So it's an old song. And he wrote this hymn. It's a hymn of joy. Obviously, it's called Joy to the World. It's a hymn of hope. And he, he based it on, largely on Psalm 98. I'll read you a few verses from Psalm 98. It says, Make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. Break forth into joyous song and sing praises. In verse 8, it starts calling for nature. Let heaven and nature sing. Let the rivers clap their hands. Let the hills sing for joy together before the Lord. For he comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world with righteousness and the peoples with equity. So Isaac Watts is reading this psalm. And he has inspiration hit and he writes this song, Joy to the World. You guys familiar with Joy to the World? You know the, the words, right? Joy to the world. The Lord is come. Let earth receive her king. Let every heart prepare him room and heaven and nature sing. He rules the world with truth and grace and makes the nations prove the glories of his righteousness and wonders of his love. Side point, I really want to live in a world where prove and love rhyme. I don't know how that works, but apparently that worked in 1719. Now, as you read those, those lyrics, very familiar hymn for probably most of us, what's missing? Do you notice anything that's missing? You notice anything that the song doesn't talk about? The song doesn't talk about shepherds or a manger or wise men following a star. It doesn't talk about really any of those traditional sort of birth of Jesus, uh, you know, Luke chapters one and two, traditional things that we, we think of. Do you know why? Because Isaac Watts did not write Joy to the World about the birth of Jesus. It's a song that was written about the return of Jesus. Did you know that? I hope you didn't know that because I wanted you to leave today saying, I learned something at church today. So he, he, he wrote Joy to the World as a song, a hymn of hope and a hymn of joy about when Christ returns at the end of the age. Now, the reason why it works so well is because there's so much overlap in the language, in the scriptures about Christ's first coming, his first advent, his first appearing, and his second coming, his second advent. It wasn't until the late part of the 1800s, early part of the 1900s, when this song was even uh, first used in reference to Christmas. So part of this for us is we have to understand where we are in the story. You guys know that God's writing a story? You know that God is, is telling a redemptive story written throughout all of the years, all the centuries, all the millennia of human history? You guys are, if you've read the Bible, you've been in church for a while, you're familiar with the flow of the story. But just to remind you where we find ourselves. First of all, there's creation. God makes the world, he creates everything in it, the plants, the, the animals, the birds, the fish. He creates the sun, the moon, the stars, he creates the oceans and the mountains. And then the, the crowning achievement of God's creation, what was it? It's mankind, male and female together created in the image and likeness of God. And God actually says everything is good, but the thing that he said is very good is mankind, but see, you can't get more than three chapters in before 
The story gets spoiled. There's a fall. The, the man and the woman, they listen to the voice of the liar. They listen to the snake and, and he deceives them. And they say, you know what? You're, you're right. God's holding out on us. And, and we want to be in charge of our own lives. And even though God's the, the king of heaven and earth and he created all things, we want to be the masters of our own fate and the, in charge of our own destiny. And so they rebel against God and, and, and they were plunged into sin. And really all of the world was plunged into brokenness because the man and the woman were given the responsibility to steward, to care for all of God's creation. There's a fall. So God then makes a promise to a man named Abraham. He says, Abraham, I'm going to use you and your family, the the people, the the nation that comes to be known as Israel. I'm going to use Israel to be a blessing to all of the nation's of the world. God enters into a special covenant with Abraham and, and with his people. And that's the, the chapter of the story known as Israel. That, that, that there's the period of Israel when they're enslaved in Egypt. And then God rescues and redeems them. And then God brings them through the desert, through the wilderness, into the promised land. And then they enter into the, the period of the judges when there's no king. And then they, they have a king, but he's a bad king. And then they get a good king, David, but he's not really that good. He's kind of a bad guy as well. And Solomon's building a temple. And then Solomon's you know, son starts fighting and the whole thing descends into chaos and the people keep worshiping idols and they go away into exile and they're saying, God, how long until you send a rescuer? How long until you send a redeemer? We thought that you were going to use us to be a blessing to all the nations of the world. And then one day when the time was right, God sent his son, Jesus And Jesus enters into the story and Jesus is born of the Virgin Mary and Jesus lives for the first 30 or so years of his life in relative obscurity. His adoptive father, Joseph, is a a, a blue collar worker, a carpenter, works with his hands. Jesus works with his hands uh, alongside of his his father and then he begins to teach and he begins to preach about the kingdom of God and he begins to offer forgiveness to sinners who would repent and he begins to start saying all sorts of crazy things, things that were really stressing people out like, like you tear down the temple and I'll rebuild it in three days. Or he says things like, if anyone believes in me, even though he dies, uh, he's going to live forever and I'll raise him up on the last day. And it enrages the, the religious leaders of the day. And so they conspire with the Roman government to have Jesus put to death publicly on a, on a Roman cross, a humiliating execution, dying on that cross. And they buried him in the ground. They buried him in the earth like a seed. But the good news is that he didn't stay dead on the third day, guess what, church? He rose. He rose again, uh, shocking everyone, blowing everyone's mind, and quite literally altering the course of human history. And then Jesus ascended into heaven where he sits today at the right hand of God, but he sent his Holy Spirit. And he sent his Holy Spirit to a group of people, the people who trust in him, Jew and Gentile now, people from all nations and languages and tribes. And all who believe in Jesus are united uh, in this one group, this one entity called the church. And we live now in the church age. That's the chapter of the story that we now live in. And and then God begins to give these visions and he speaks prophetically to an apostle named John and he has this picture of the end of the age and he speaks to the apostle Paul and they begin to speak about when Jesus returns and there's there's a crescendo. The story is building to something. It's building to the return of Jesus. And that's how the story ends. With his triumphal appearing, his victorious appearing that, that we won't live in the brokenness of the world anymore, but Jesus will return. He'll make all things new. 
Now, we live in chapter 5 of the story. We live in this church age, the time in between the two advents of Jesus. Can you put up that next slide there so we can see this just visually? We live in between Jesus' first appearing and Jesus' second appearing. We live in between the two advents. And it's a time of tension. Theologians, Christian scholars and theologians, sometimes they'll refer to this as the overlap of the ages. God's kingdom has truly come. It really has come in the person and the work of Jesus, his first coming. But we don't yet see it fully come. We're still to pray, Lord Jesus, let your kingdom come because we're awaiting his second advent. I like the analogy that the Apostle Paul uses. The Apostle Paul uses the analogy of pregnancy. He uses the analogy of, of a pregnant woman. And he says that, you know, when there's, when there's a pregnant woman, there really is a baby in there, right? Uh, those of you who have been pregnant, or those of you who are pregnant, you can feel the, the baby trying to burst through the abdominal wall. Like, there's a baby in there, right? Uh, we had, I don't know if we have any pregnant women here today, but, but you are a walking metaphor for the church age that we live in right now. Some of you would say I'm a waddling metaphor, but you, nonetheless, you're, you're a metaphor. You're a picture of this age that we're in. The apostle Paul says we're waiting, we're groaning, like with, with the pangs of childbirth, all creation is groaning, waiting for the sons of God to be revealed on the day when Christ Jesus returns. We're in this tension age. We're in this overlap of the ages, the already not yet of the kingdom. And that explains some of the tension that we feel, doesn't it? Jesus, you're, you're here. You've, you've come. You said you, you came to set the captives free and to bring peace and to bring wholeness. Why is there still so much brokenness in the world? Well, because we're still waiting for his second advent. And that really is, is the big idea for today is this. We live in a time of tension between two advents, the two arrivals of King Jesus. By looking back on Christ's first advent, we can have hope while we await Christ's second coming. Show of hands, how many of you, you yourself or you know somebody could use a little bit of hope right now, okay? Um, I, I look around, again, you know, just the news. I look around the world. I look around people I, I know personally. There's a lot of brokenness. Uh, even this morning as people are walking in, I say things like, hey, you know, hope you had a good Thanksgiving. I had a few people kind of go, uh, family, you know? Things are, things are tough. Um, I don't know everybody's situation in this room, but I know people are struggling with finances. I know some of you are dealing with job stress. I know some of you are dealing with um, difficulties with health, either for yourself or with a loved one. Some of you have lost a loved one recently. We all need hope. We all know people who desperately need hope. And so that's what I want to offer you today as a word of hope. Not a word of hope like just because I say so, but a word of hope because God says so. So as we look at this idea of hope, we're going to see three things in this passage. We're going to see the nature of hope. We're going to see what it is. We're going to see the substance of hope, like what the hope is actually based on. And then we're going to see the results of hope. So let's go back to verse 13, if we could, and look at the nature of hope. The Apostle Paul is writing to this church in Thessalonica. He says, I don't want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, so that you may not grieve as others do, who have no, what's our word? Hope. For since we believe, and, and then I'll pick up on what we believe in a minute here, but, but let me just point this out to you, okay? Uh, the Apostle Paul is writing to this, this group of Christians, and they've lost hope, and they're really grieving because they've misunderstood a few things. 
And it seems like there's a few different misunderstandings going on, but one of them is they are waiting for Jesus to return. Like they're expecting him back any day. First of all, I love that type of expectancy. We should be living with that type of expectancy as well, right, Christians? But, but they'd misunderstood something. It's, it's Jesus is, is yet to return. They're like, where have you been? It's been like 15 years. It's been 20 years. And here we are, like, it's been like 2,000 years and we're still waiting. But they f- were afraid that those Christian brothers and sisters in their church who, who had gotten old or gotten sick and died, that they were going to miss out on the return of Jesus. They had a misunderstanding. They had a misunderstanding about the return of Jesus and it had led them to kind of a hopeless state. And so the Apostle Paul is writing to them to clear up some of those misunderstandings and to tell them about what hope truly is. I think we have some misunderstandings in our culture about what hope truly is. Ours is a little bit different though. Um, I think that for many of us in our culture, we view hope primarily as an emotion. I think back to the um, election, not the most recent one, but the election of uh, President Obama in, what would that have been, 2008. You guys remember the hope poster? You guys can probably all picture it immediately in your mind, the kind of blue and red and beige and, and just the big word hope underneath it. Uh, I, I did a little studying on that. I, I didn't know the, the full history of it. It wasn't uh, originally designed by the Obama campaign. It was actually put together by someone who was just a political supporter of Obama. He designed the poster. He printed 300 copies basically to sell for his, to, for his friends. It became such a hit that it ended up selling 300,000 printed copies and nobody could even estimate how many digital online versions there are out there. In that election, in that time, there was a lot of war going on in the Middle East. I mean, totally unlike our day today. A lot of conflict, a lot of, uh, you know, political division. And, and the, the creator of that poster, he really tapped into a deep emotion. People had a very emotional response. I think, it's, I think it's safe to say, you can demonstrate that that poster and that idea of hope, it resonated so deeply that it really contributed to Obama winning the election in 2008. People are longing for hope. People desire hope. It's a very emotional sort of a thing. How many of you have ever had your hopes dashed? You ever hoped for something and then it, it, it didn't come to pass? You, where do you feel that? Kind of in the pit of your stomach, right? Just maybe a weight on your shoulders or a weight in your chest. We can feel that. The problem is that in our culture, many people define hope exclusively in terms of emotion. And in fact, in our culture, uh, hope is more along the lines of just wishful thinking, right? I hope I win the lottery. I hope I get a raise at work. Or like me this morning when I was driving here early a little bit faster than I should, I hope that police officer I just drove past doesn't pull me over, right? It's wishful thinking. I have no reason to to actually hope for that. I don't have any confidence that the police officer didn't pull me over. My wishful thinking came true. But, But friends, the Bible speaks about hope differently than that. According to the Bible, hope is not just wishful thinking. Like I want something to happen. Hope is confidence that it will happen. Hope, biblically shaped hope, is a grounded hope. It's not, it's not just wishful thinking. It's actually trust. It's actually confidence. Uh, biblically grounded hope, let me share with you just a couple things. First of all, it's shaped by the scriptures. We don't just have hope based on our own wishful thinking. We actually look to the written word of God that's given to us for the express purpose of giving us hope. 
The apostle Paul writes in Romans 15, he says, whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. So, so friends, for those of you who are Christians, your hope is not to be just dreamt up or imagined on your own. Your hope actually comes from the written word of God. Why is that? Number two is because in the written word of God, we see what the character of God is like. We see what he's like. We see who our God is and, and what he is, you know, his personality, so to speak, his, his character, his faithfulness, his trustworthiness. Biblical hope is rooted in the character of God. Uh, back when we were studying the book of Hebrews, Hebrews chapter six, I believe that Pastor Travis preached on this verse and it says that it's a big run on sentence, but I'll explain it to you. This is what the author of Hebrews says. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of promise, the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement and hold fast to the hope that is set before us. Big long run on sentence. But what the author of Hebrews is saying, hey, how are you going to have hope? By looking at the character of God, and it is impossible for God to lie. God does not lie. God does not go back on his promises. God never fails to live up to the promises he makes. So if you want to have hope, you need to look at who God is. His unchangeable character. How many of you know our God is a faithful God? How many of you know that he never fails to keep his promises? Are you encouraged by that? That's biblical hope. That's grounded hope. It's not just wishful thinking. You're, you're, you're a Christian. It means you can say, I know who my God is and I know what he's like. And it's not just who he is and what he's like. I know what he has already done. That's the third thing about hope. Biblical hope is grounded in God's past actions. We don't just say, I know what he's like. We can actually go and say, I know what he has done. I know the activities, the actions he has taken to give us hope. In, in Psalm 77, David is writing and he's really bummed out. If you read the first, oh, nine, ten verses, he's, he's really struggling. He's having a hard time. And then he kind of turns this corner and he says, you know what? I will appeal to this. To the years of the right hand of the Most High. Right hand is a, an image for God's strength and his power. I will remember the deeds of the Lord. Yes, I will remember your wonders of old. I will ponder all your work and meditate on your mighty deeds. David says, you know what's going to be the, the answer to hopelessness in my soul? I'm going to look back and I'm going to remember what God has done. At his point in redemptive history, David would look back on the Exodus. He'd say, God, you freed us out of slavery in Egypt. You brought us through the wilderness. You brought us into the land. I'm going to look back on those actions that you have done. And I'm going to remember what you've done for us. And lastly, biblically grounded hope is confident about the future. And that's really where we're going to go in these, these next verses. But, but you need to understand... Biblical hope has confidence. Biblical hope is not wishful thinking. It's expectancy. It's, it's a high degree of confidence that God will do what it is that he says that he will do. 
And so actually thinking about this past, present, and future, we can actually see those things right here in the next, uh, the next verses, looking at the substance of hope. Look with me at verse 14. He says, for since we believe, what? What do we believe? That Jesus died and rose again. Even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. Look at where this idea of hope starts. It looks back on the cross. Friends, at our point in redemptive history, if you want to know where your hope is, you look at the cross of Jesus Christ. We look back that God sent his son, Jesus, born of the Virgin Mary. That Jesus lived a life free from sin. Hey, by the way, none of you have ever done that. I've never done that. Well, I, I haven't made it. It's not even noon yet. And I'm sure I've sinned countless times. Jesus actually stood up in front of crowds and said, who here can accuse me of any wrongdoing? The apostle Paul writes about how Jesus, he, he, he lived a righteous life and that, that the righteousness that Jesus lived can be imputed, can be given to us, gifted to us. The apostle Peter writes that Jesus was a sacrificial lamb without any blemish or spot. Jesus lived a perfect life. And because of that, it means that his death on the cross actually means something. He could be that perfect sacrifice for for us. You have sinned. I have sinned. We all fall short of God's righteousness. We all fall short of God's glory. But Jesus put himself forth as a sacrifice, an atoning sacrifice in his blood that we might be forgiven. And then on the third day, guess what? He rose from the dead. That's what makes Christianity different from any other world religion or any other system of belief. We do not serve a dead religious founder. We don't serve a wise guru or a teacher of good truths. We serve a resurrected savior. And then, as I said, he ascended into the right hand of the father where he rules and reigns over all of heaven and earth to this day. And friends, we are blessed because we get to look back on that past action that God took in human history to give us hope. How many of you need that as a grounding for you? How many of you need that as a little bit of hope in your life? It's not just God's past action, but there's hope for the present. Look at what it says in verse 15. It says, for this, we declare to you by a word from the Lord that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. Okay, uh, there are two basic states that we as humans can exist in, alive and dead. Okay, just, wow, think about that for a moment, right? Presently, we who are alive can have hope. Why? Because the Bible teaches us that we've been filled with the Holy Spirit. Because Jesus said, I will never leave you, nor will I forsake you. Because Jesus said, I will build my church and the the gates of hell will not prevail against it, will not win against it. Why? We can have hope in the present because our God is with us. And because today we can know that our sins are forgiven. But what about those who have died? What about those who have, have passed away? As a pastor, I do a decent number of funerals. Uh, there was a, a period actually where I, I was keeping count. I had done more funerals than I had done weddings. I don't know exactly why that is, but, but um, funerals are a real sacred moment. And there really are two types of funerals. For me as a pastor going in, one of the first things I usually ask for, for the person who's, who's requesting it, did the person know and love Jesus? For those who did not know and love Jesus, it's, it's a, that's a hard it's a hard thing. 
Uh, there's still words of comfort to be offered, words of encouragement to be offered, but it's a, it's, a, it's a hard thing to not know confidently what someone's eternal destiny is. But then there are those funerals where someone says, oh, they love Jesus, they walked with him faithfully. The, the evidence, the fruit was just all over their lives. I did a funeral just about a year ago for a man who just was radically changed by Jesus and he lived into his 70s and he passed away and just the legacy he left behind. You know what, that, that funeral, yeah, it was sad, but we got to celebrate. <laughs> we got to have joy even in the midst of grieving. And do you know why? Because the Bible says that for those who are Christians, for those who are believers, death is no more permanent than a nap. Do you see the language that Paul says? Those who are asleep, they've fallen asleep. For those who die, for those who know Jesus, yes, their body and their spirit are separated. Body goes into the ground, decomposes, gross. Uh, But the spirit goes to be in the presence of the Lord where they experience rest and they experience peace and they experience joy even as they long for the final resurrection of the dead. We can have hope today because death doesn't get the final word. Death is not the permanent end of those who trust in Jesus. The apostle Paul says, Jesus himself said that that for the Christian, for the believer, Death is no more permanent than just taking a nap. Going to bed at night, you know, wake up in the morning. It's just a phase right now. It's just a season. Some of you have lost loved ones. Some of you, even right now, I know are grieving the loss of loved ones. And you can take heart. You can have hope today knowing that death doesn't get the final word. Is that encouraging to anyone here this morning? We can have hope in the present And then Paul points us to the future, verses 16 and 17. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Uh, if you thought that I wouldn't preach about the rapture on the first Sunday of Advent, you were wrong. Here we go. Um, this, is, this verse, this passage here is uh, become the subject of much controversy. Uh, the words there, uh, caught up, when it was translated into Latin, it's the word, rap- it's basically rapture, where we get our, our, our English word for rapture. And there have been many um, speculations that have come in and imported themselves on this teaching and much clutter. My, my hope today is to declutter this for you a little bit, okay? Uh, we can have all sorts of discussions about the end times and the return of Jesus, and we can talk about tribulations and all those sorts of different things, but, but here's a few things I want us all to agree on as Christians. Number one, that God is taking human history somewhere, It's all building to a crescendo that no matter how chaotic things seem today in our world, that God is still sovereign and there is going to be an ending of the story. And that the ending of the story is Christ returning in glory and every eye will see him, every ear will hear the sound of the trumpet, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. 
We can all agree on that one, right? That there is a day of coming. The dead will rise. I want to point that out to you as well. We need to understand that as Christians, our, our eternal destiny is not some disembodied, ethereal, floating, kind of shimmery, see-through, Looney Tunes sort of thing where we're sitting on a cloud, playing a harp, wearing, you know, a white robe or a golden diaper or some sort of a, you know, thing. It's, this, is, this is the language of, of, of physicality. God created the earth. God created matter. He likes it. It says the dead in Christ will rise. There will be a day when all of us who have trusted in Christ Jesus will receive a new body, a resurrection body, glorified, free from sin, free from sickness, free from aches and pains, and free from death itself. Amen? That is our hope. That is our destiny. And then what this passage is specifically calling out It's not trying to get us into a bunch of arguments about the rapture. What it's trying to point out to us is the joy and the celebration that will happen at the returning of our King Jesus. And here's why I say that. I want you to understand this. I'll belabor this point for just a moment. There are three very political terms that the Apostle Paul uses in this passage. Three loaded terms that would have had a lot of meaning for the first hearers. The first one is the word for coming. We see this in verse 15, the coming of our Lord Jesus. The Greek word is parousia, and this was a common term. We find this term used all over the place outside of the scriptures for when a king would come into a city, when a king would maybe go out to battle and then his appearing, his returning would be called his parousia. There's a second term that, that we will meet the Lord in the air. The, the Greek word there is apontesis. And again, this is used all over the place outside of the Bible to, to speak about the crowds rushing out of the city. The king is coming. The king is parousaing. That's bad English and Greek at the same time. But uh, the, the king is, he's coming, he's returning, he's appearing. We're going to rush out of the city and we're going to meet him. And then the third term, which is a political term, you might not have noticed it because it's so familiar to us, is the word Lord. The word in the Greek is kyrios. The word Lord is a loaded political term. Do you know why? Because there was this little saying that floated around the Roman Empire around the time of the writing of the New Testament. The saying went like this, Caesar is Lord. And if you did not confess that Caesar is Lord, essentially confessing that the Caesar, the emperor, was was divine and sovereign over all things, you could face punishment, even death. And in fact, many of our Christian brothers and sisters in the early church faced just that because they would not bow their knee and say Caesar is Lord. They proclaimed boldly that Jesus is Lord. And Caesar can go, you know, take a hike. This is, this is political language. This is political terminology. It says that we have hope because we have a king and he's going to come back to his city. And when he returns, we're all going to rush out of the city, as it were, to welcome him, to meet him and welcome him back into the city. How many of you know that the end of the story, it, again, it's not us flying away and floating off somewhere into outer space, but the book of Revelation says that that Jesus will descend and he'll bring the new Jerusalem, the heavenly city with him. Our destiny is not someplace kind of ethereal and see-through. It's, it's here, new heavens, new earth, all of the brokenness 
removed. All of the sin, all of the suffering done away with. Nothing but God's shalom, his wholeness, his peace for the rest of eternity. And we will be present with our King Jesus. Don't miss the point of the passage. The point is not to freak you out about your airline pilot being a Christian, getting raptured in the middle of your flight. The point is that we're going to party and celebrate with our King Jesus. At a big long quote from a historian named Josephus, I'm just going to skip it because I don't want to belabor the point too much. I will post it up on the website if you'd like to read some history that describes, basically just to summarize, he he talks about the way that one of the kings was coming back into the town and the people rush out and they start throwing flowers and they welcome him back into the city and they're chanting out, hail to our conquering king and hail to our returning champion. And and this, this is the history that this was written in Paul wants us to know that we have hope because our king is returning. Our king is coming. And in the meantime, we look forward to that day and we get hope from that day because we know that God never goes back on his promises. Amen? That's where we're headed. Let me close with this, the results of hope. What is, when we have that hope, when we, when we understand the nature of what hope is, and we understand the substance of that hope, that it's all grounded in Jesus, what happens in us? Go back to verse 13. He says, I don't want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, so that we may not grieve as others do who have no hope. And then when you skip down to verse 18, the, the, the closing words, it says, therefore, he says, encourage one another with these words. Friends, hope puts grief to death. Hope is more powerful than grief. And, and let me, I want to I be careful with this. What I don't want you to hear is that being a Christian and having hope means that everything is always happy, clappy, yay, yippee, all the time, hashtag blessed, right? That, that's not what I'm talking about. When we talk about Christian hope, what we mean is this. We can look directly in the eyes of the most hopeless situation. We can see the full weight of it, and yet we can still have hope. Because our Savior died. He was buried in the ground. That Saturday was very hopeless. But on the third day, he rose again, and he proved that all of his claims were true. So so whatever you're facing whatever struggles you're going through, whatever hopeless situation we see in the world, it's not more powerful than the resurrection. One of my, one of my favorite pastors and authors, D.A. Carson, he says, there's nothing I'm struggling with in this life that a good resurrection can't fix. I like that quote. Again, it, it, Christian hope is not just a glib, yay, everything is happy. You know, it's not like the, was that the Lego movie? You know, everything is awesome. That's not Christian hope. Christian hope is a lot of things are really broken right now. But we have hope in Jesus because of what he has done, what he is currently doing, and what he will do. Hope puts grief to death. Amen? And hope puts fear to death. Verse 18 says, therefore encourage one another with these words. Sometimes we forget about that word encourage. Encourage. Courage. Giving people courage in the face of, of fear. What are you afraid of? When you look at the brokenness in the world, when you look at the brokenness in your own life, what what things stress you out? 
what things keep you awake at night. Again, I don't want to make light of any of your sufferings or any of the hard things you're going through. But really, like really, what's the worst possible thing that could happen? You live, you suffer 50, 60, 80 years, and then you die. Like, how bad is that really? Because you know what? In the light of eternity, when we've been there 10,000 years, bright shining as the sun, we've no less days. It should be no fewer days grammatically, but I'll quote the lyrics. It's just no less days to sing God's praise than when we first begun. We get eternity with Jesus, friends. We get eternity with Jesus. Again, I'm not trying to diminish your suffering. I know much of it is very painful. That's why God's put us together in the body of Christ. That's why he's given us community and relationship and the scriptures and pastors and all those things. But, but really, at the end of the day, the promise of God is that all of those broken things will become undone and we can't even comprehend the eternal weight of glory that is ahead of us. So encourage one another with these words. Take heart, friends. Take heart. Death doesn't get the final word. Jesus does. Can I pray for you? Let's invite you to pray with me if you would. God, I, I don't know, and we don't know every situation that's present here in this room, but we trust that you do. And we trust that you not only know, but you care. God, for my friends here today who are going through just difficult seasons, who are experiencing um, hopelessness, God, I pray that they would take their eyes off of earthly and temporal things. I, pl- I pray that they would place their hope, that you would help them by your spirit to place their ultimate hope in Jesus. His first advent, his death, his resurrection, and his second advent, his promised return. God, for any of my friends who are here today who are are not yet Christians. God, I ask and pray that you would give them the faith to place their hope in Jesus, maybe for the first time. To admit, God, that the things of this earth have have let us all down and we we need a greater hope. We need a, a, a deeper hope. We need Jesus. God, I pray for all of us now as we enter into a time of responding to you. Would you help us to worship and to pray and to sing as people of great hope. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Friends, I want to call us into a time of response now. We're going to respond in a variety of ways. The first way we're going to respond is uh, through the giving of our tithes and offerings. If you're a guest, please know you're not obliged to give. I don't want anyone to feel awkward about it. But I do want to invite all of you to give as people of hope. And, and here's, here's something to think about. Giving is a great way to say, my hope is not in my money. My hope is not in my bank account. My hope is not in my wallet. My hope is in Jesus. And so as you give, give as an act of worship. In a moment, they're going to pass out the elements for communion and we're going to welcome our younger students class in to join with us for this time of responding and, and celebrating the Lord's table. But while they're passing uh, the offering buckets and as they come to collect the, uh, or to pass out the communion elements, let me read to you our discussion questions for this week, things to help you in your homes and community groups to just talk about this idea of hope. Number one, how, how does the connection between Christ's first advent and second advent help us understand our place in the story of redemption? And how does this connection give us hope? Second question, where in your life do you struggle to hope 
Where is your hope weak? Or where is your hope maybe been more wishful thinking instead of true gospel grounded hope? Uh, here's a fun one. Number three, argue about the rapture. Uh, I'm just kidding, but if you want to make community group a little extra fun this week, go ahead. Uh, argue. Um, actually, in all seriousness, though, how can we talk about these different perspectives and not lose the big idea, not lose the forest for the trees? And don't really argue. That's not good. Uh, number four, discuss how God's past action and his future promises give us hope for the present. And a couple things to pray about because we really do desire to be people of prayer. Pray that we would be people of great hope no matter how dark or broken things may appear to be. And pray that God would use us to share the hope of eternal life with those who have yet to believe. As the volunteers are passing out the elements for communion, I'm going to read from 1 Corinthians 11 as we set the table and set the stage for what we're about to celebrate here. The Apostle Paul writes this, I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also, he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever therefore, and here's the invitation to examine ourselves, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. And I say this every week, but eating and drinking in an unworthy manner means that we come with pride or we come with self-sufficiency. There are no perfect people about to take communion. We come together to say, Jesus, I am desperately in need of your grace. I come before you broken. So then let a person examine himself and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. And today as we eat of the bread and drink of the cup, my prayer is that God would fill you with hope because of what Christ did on the cross. I'll invite our musicians to come too. We're going to enter into a time of singing and lifting our voices. And before we do that, I have a, I have a hymn that I would like us to read uh, out loud together as a bit of a prayer. We'll see if we can do this. This is a, um, from a hymn called Hark the Glad Sound. And this isn't one of our traditional Christmas hymns, uh, but it's one that I, I, I've stumbled across and I love how the lyrics, it works again in that dual purpose, the first coming of Christ and the second coming of Christ. So we'll try this together. I need some of you who are more confident to read loud and proud. And if we stumble over the words, it's okay because we're going to do this as a prayer of worship before the Lord. So let's read this together. Hark the glad sound, the Savior comes, the Savior promised long. Let every heart prepare a throne and every voice a song. He comes the prisoners to release in Satan's bondage held. The gates of brass before him burst, the iron fetters yield. He comes the broken heart to bind, the bleeding soul to cure, and with the treasures of his grace to enrich the humble poor. That's our hope. Amen. Let me pray for us and we'll enter into our time of singing and responding. Father, I pray right now, as we eat of the bread and as we drink of the cup, we would be reminded of our Savior's death and resurrection 2,000 years ago. But God, we would also be reminded of his promised return, that he rose from the dead and we await his second advent. 
I ask and pray, Lord God, now that you would fill us with hope as we sing and as we pray and as we respond to you. May we be people of hope, not only hope for ourselves, but hope to share with others as we go out of here rejoicing. God, I pray that you'd send your spirit, fill us with that hope right now. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Church, you may uh, take communion when you're ready and then I'll invite you as you're led to stand to your feet and sing with us.